everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s, except on occasion when we jump into the 2000s to tell origin stories or retroactive continuity like we will today. Uh, today's issue, we are going to be reviewing Avengers Origins Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver number one, which is a uh, 2000s book that is set in the prehistory of uh, the Marvel Universe uh, prior to X-Men 1, uh, except maybe not because the Scarlet Witch changed everything recently. So <laughs> we'll talk about all the crazy continuity today. I am thrilled to be joined by two new friends and my returning friend, uh, Steve Orlando. The incredible uh, Russell Dowderman is here with us, which I'm fangirling about so hard right now. And then uh, uh, my co-host today is, uh, is Daniel Byrne. I'm so happy to see you all. As we are uh, introducing ourselves, let us know your name, your gender pronouns, where we might know you from. And then uh, my intro question for today is, what's the worst Scarlet Witch story you can think of? We'll go in the order of uh, Russell, Steve, and then Dan. Uh, hi, I'm Russell, um, he, him, and I uh, probably know me from um, the Mighty Thor comics. I was the artist on those. Um, lately, I've been doing a lot of cover work for the X-Men, Marauders, X-Men Red, uh, character design for the Hellfire Gala, and I am the cover artist for the new Scarlet Witch series. Ah! <laughs> uh, gender pronouns and uh, what is uh, what is the worst Scarlet Witch story you can think of? Gender pronouns, he, him. Um, the worst Scarlet Witch story. I don't want to disparage any creators, but um, <laughs> I'll say any story where Wanda's used as a plot device and not as a character. I think that has happened to her a few times where she's used sort of instigate a story and then the repercussions of that aren't really felt for her. So. I, uh, I I learned long ago, I never want to badmouth a creator at all, but if I find problematic continuity, I can lovingly discuss it. <laughs> I'll let you do that. Then. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here, Russell. And then uh, let's bring yeah, Steve next. Sure. Uh, I'm Steve Orlando. You might know me well from a lot of things. Uh, nearly every every character uh, at DC, they put me through a lot of stuff there. So I was on Wonder Woman, Justice League of America, Batman, Martian Manhunter, Midnighter. Many people probably know me from. And then at DC, I'm on X-Men Green. I'm on Marauders. And uh, germane to this conversation, I'm uh, writing Scarlet Witch with Russell on the covers uh, and doing designs. And Sarah Pichelli inside as well. Uh, and oh, and the Scarlet Witch story. Jesus, uh, I agree. I agree with Russell. It's hard to. It's hard to. You don't really want to put a, a dark cloud over any of our peers. So I, I'm gonna. And also, then Russell had my answer. So this is really complicated. Uh, I'm just gonna say the Avengers United. They stand cartoon. You know, because I feel like those people are safe. And uh, that was not her best. That was not her best appearance. Not the least of which is because she had purple and red, which I thought clashed a little bit in her outfit. Steve, I love that costume. <laughs> Well, that's okay because you've made a better one, so that's totally fine. Okay. okay. Um, I, I, I mean, listen. I could go even. I could go further back. I could say. I could say season two Iron Man the animated series where she's in Force Works. I'm just picking people who are invulnerable to criticism. Or, uh, or Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness Part Two where she slaughters people. <laughs> yeah, you know, if I ever gave my, you know, that's certainly a topic that would not uh, ignite a firestorm for me to discuss. 
uh, in any way. <laughs> and then uh, lastly, I really, I really like I really like the paint dimension in Multiverse of Madness. So. That was pretty cool. That was that was pretty great. Uh, and then lastly, Dan Byrne. Hi, Dan. Hi, um, my name is Dan Byrne. I go by he, him pronouns. Um, not sure what you would know me from. I'm just a pretty casual comic and horror fan, um, although I'm on Instagram pretty actively. Uh, and I'm a cosplayer, uh, so I do that when I can, and a performer out here in Southern California. Um, least favorite Scarlet Witch story? It's tough, because again, I don't want to disparage any creators either. I will say... Maybe my one of my favorites, but also one of my least favorites would probably be the House of M storyline, not because I don't love the story, but because of the plot device thing and how long that stuck with her throughout her comic uh, continuity and how long the M day stigma just kind of followed her um, and kind of kept her from being a fully realized character for so long. Um, that and then there's there's it might be a toss up with the the incestuous ultimate story. Oh, that's such a good one. I should have brought up the incest. I don't uh, And then lastly, my name is Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. You know me as the host of this show. I'm also a former Marvel Comics handbook writer and a uh, novelist and documentarian. I, uh, I can list a whole bunch of problematic... Uh, Scarlet Witch stories. And I mean no offense to anybody because I'm just lovingly looking at a character's whole history. If you'd like my thoughts on the Scarlet Witch used as a plot device, go back and check out The Trial of Wanda Maximoff, which we put on the show last year where we discuss a lot of these things. Uh, Wanda has had a lot of problems. The biggest one that comes to mind is her use in Uncanny Avengers where she inadvertently helps the Red Skull uh, make the Red Onslaught and then the Axis event afterward and all of that nonsense. Uh, there's uh, there's the recent story where she goes to Genosha and tries to do something nice, but ends up making 16 million zombies. Uh, and there's, a, there's a few of those events along the way where uh, where she's often problematic. I think my least favorite, though, uh, is in her West Coast Avengers, where she goes back to being evil because her babies that are made from the devil disappear. And it's uh, it's a lot of craziness. But, okay, <laughs> but that's a costume that I love. If we want to talk about costumes that are not the main costume that I love, her giant wizard uh, collar. The John Byrne costume, I have a, I have a soft spot, but I can't say that it's not a. It doesn't break every rule that I said I didn't like about the United States. <laughs> we're gonna have a lot of Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver love, mostly Scarlet Witch, on the show today. And this we're gonna we're gonna time the episode release around this around the time when the first Scarlet Witch issue comes out in January of 2023, which I'm very very excited about and have been for some time. Uh, but I want to start uh, getting to know Russell a little bit. Russell, I know you from a number of incredible art projects uh, across the run, uh, particularly at Marvel, your Jane Foster works amazing. I want to talk about that. But if we could start, just tell me a little bit about your journey as a kind of fan into professional artist. I know you have a particular uh, history of costume design. I'd love to hear a little bit of your story, my friend. Yeah, um, I'm sort of a cliche for 90s kids because I got into uh, comics with X-Men, the animated series. Um, you know, that was my first exposure to really comic booky things. And I was obsessed with X-Men and all the women, of course. Um, and that, you know, led me to the comics just because I wanted more of those characters. Um, and I think it uh, took me a few years to figure out that, like, they came out every week and, you know, you could get new ones every month or whatever. <laughs> uh, and I would just go to the comic book store and if there was a character I liked on the 
cover and uh, try to get that. And I had those early trades like the the Dark Phoenix trade and the From the Ashes trade. Um, and then if, I think around Operation Zero Tolerance, I probably figured out the monthly release thing. And from there, I was just collecting comics, um, mostly X-Men, but also you know, Avengers, uh, a lot of Scarlet Witch stuff. And, um, you know, on the drawing front, I mean, my parents say I was drawing since I could pick up a, you know, crayon or whatever, but uh, I was in, uh, you know, art lessons from when I was little and went to school for art. And that's where I, you know, studied costume design a bit. Um, And I tried out a few different things, like if I wanted to be a, costume designer for theater or film or, or, you know, I was thinking of advertising because somewhere in my brain, I thought you could make money with that. And, you know, all these kind of art-ish things, but it kept coming back to comics for me. So eventually I just really made a go at that and started submitting to Marvel and trying to get noticed. And um, eventually, you know, I did and was lucky to break in. You uh, you have a pretty impressive resume looking over, and you've got your master's in costume design, correct? I did, yeah, yeah. That's that's impressive, and to land in comic books using that particular skill set is amazing. How do you use your skill sets in designing looks for things like the Hellfire Gala, as an example? Well, I mean the the main thing with costume design, at least you know when you're being taught it, is it always starts with character. So you always start with a character breakdown, like what are the um, characteristics of this person? Are they outgoing? Are they introverted? Or, you know, all of these, are they a brainy character? Are they kind of dumb? Or, you know, all of these things that might not seem like they would really influence the clothes, but they really help you to get a sense of who that person is and then what they would wear. And then you have to translate that into what are, colors and silhouettes and types of clothing that might emulate those characteristics. And so I think all of that character stuff, whether I'm designing a costume or just, you know, drawing a cover or interiors, it it informs the, the comic book stuff because comics are all about character. I mean, that's why we like these superhero stories is, you know, for the characters. So I think rooting it in that is, really helpful. I'm hearing you put a lot of love and careful consideration when you're designing these looks that which is a, a wonderful thing. I think uh, often oftentimes people focus on like the team look and like the stylized look but uh, something like the Hellfire Gala is where you're putting so much individual thought into each character and how they would look and dress and present. People are noticing it's uh it's it's really wonderful to see these characters portrayed in this way. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was all Jerry Duggan, you know, bringing me into that. And I'm really thankful uh, for him and um, Jonathan Hickman and Jordan White, the editor. Uh, you know, I I didn't want it to be just like um, superheroes wearing fancy clothes that just happened to be in their signature colors. And, you know, Marvel didn't want that either. They, you know, part of the, the assignment was that these should be high fashion looks, but that wouldn't feel out of place, you know, if they were in a video game or, you know, something like that. So I have tried to approach it as 
a really high fashion superhero costume and not just a dress that's, you know, in black and yellow, you know? Yeah. Um, and that makes it exciting for me because, you know, I, as a little kid, I would just draw new superhero costumes for all these characters. And I, that was a dream of getting to do that. And so the Hellfire Gals like doing that on steroids. So, you, you know, you take the, the things that are iconic about a character and then try to really elevate them and make them bigger and uh, more fabulous. Now, a couple of years ago, Jason Aaron told an iconic story, which is so well remembered and has even been adapted into movies at this point uh, about the uh, 60s character Jane Foster, Thor's old girlfriend who classically in one panel in the 1960s is thinking, if only Thor would let me take care of him. And in her dream, she's polishing his hammer. <laughs> He, he made her the new Thor a few years ago. She is an iconic new interpretation of Thor. It is a, a story about power and heroism as she struggles with cancer and sacrifices some of her own life every time she uh, changes herself. Uh, we could talk just about that for our entire interview. The uh, her, her battle with Shara and Kaithri in the, in the Shi'ar Empire. Uh, I mean, Steve would have a lot to say about that, having spent a lot of time with the Shi'ar recently as well. Uh, but uh, I would love to hear a little bit of your recollections about working on Jane Foster. Uh, and uh, a question I'll tag onto that is kind of the difference of doing interiors and covers and uh, and what you love and prefer. Yeah, um, well, I, I had been trying to break in at, you know, mostly Marvel and uh, I ended up getting work at DC and then switched over to Marvel after, you know, I did some fill-in issues on Nightwing and I was doing the, uh, a Cyclops solo book that was about the teenage Cyclops um, with Greg Rucka writing. And I had done three issues of that when Marvel asked me to move over and do the, the new Thor book. And I, at first I was like, but like, I'm already on this other thing and this is X-Men, which is what I always loved. And like, is anyone even going to care? Because like this Thor book isn't about the dude Thor. It's about Jane Foster that nobody really knows as Thor. So I had hesitations about all of it. Um, but I got the treatment from Jason or his, you know, his pitch. And I just really loved it. And I thought, you know, that this would be a really great project to do. And uh, I think at first it was the Will Moss emailed me asking for a variant cover for it. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Um, love to. And that variant ended up being the cover for number one, like the main cover with the close up of the face. And I think that's what sort of sealed the deal. I guess they had been thinking of me for that project and then seeing that sort of did it. Um, but yeah, that was a really wonderful project to be a part of and uh, I'm so glad that that they asked me to do that. Um, interiors versus covers. I, I mean, if I could do one, I would do covers. I mean, I, I really like that in a cover you can tell a story, but in a single image and put a lot of time and effort into one thing, as opposed to having to spread that time and effort out over, you know, multiple pages. And I'm maybe not the fastest <laughs> at interiors. And um, 
I'm pretty meticulous about things, which is not a great, great combination for um, doing things quickly. So, you know, working on Thor and Mighty Thor and then War of the Realms was a, a stretch of um, a few years where I sort of didn't have any time off and, and after I was a little burned out on interiors, honestly. Um, and so now I'm, you know, very happy to be doing covers and character design and then the occasional interior thing, um, you know, when it's something I'm really passionate about that I'm really glad I still get to do those too. I, scripting, I, I I don't know if people often take the time to realize what they ask of artists, but it's, you know, page one, Jane Foster is receiving chemotherapy. She looks small and emaciated. And in page two, she's punching a space god. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of uh, expectation and requirement. Uh, doing interiors is, is a tremendous slog sometimes, I know. Uh, but so well remembered. And your your work on uh, on Cyclops, you draw the sexiest Corsair. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's oh, favorite space daddy. <laughs> yeah, um, Greg Rucker was disappointed that I gave him a shirt in the third issue because he had been, I think, shirtless in every uh, issue before that. And I guess he had his shirt off and then they crashed a plane and it was nighttime and they had a fire. So in my brain, I'm like, well, he's probably cold. So he might put a shirt on and Greg <laughs> wasn't happy. <laughs> a lot of people know, and I know this is all, all online, uh, all over the place lately. A lot of people know you from the variant costume covers you've been doing where it's one character in almost every version of their costume in one space, as if there's a giant team up of everyone across the multiverse or like plucked out of time in one space. Uh, I love it. You've done you've done Wasp. You've done Gambit. You've done so many different characters. Uh, how did that start? Uh, it's become something you're very well known for. Uh, those are I I love doing those. That's a something I wanted to do for a long time. I mean, I'm not the first person to do one of those sorts of covers. Um, you know, I've seen other people do a character in all their costumes, sorts of covers. Yeah, and... but you do it better. <laughs> <laughs> That's very kind. Thank you. Um, and I really wanted to do one for Jean Grey, who's you know one of my favorite characters. And this was uh, around like uh, House of X time. And so I, you know, I just did a sketch. Like no one asked me for it, but I did a sketch of the what became the Jean Grey costume cover, and I sent it to um, someone at Marvel who you know works on the the variant covers. And I said, hey, you know, I'd really love to do this. Do you think there's a spot for it? Like, no, no worries if not, like I totally understand. And, and she found a spot for it um, on X-Men number one that Hickman was launching. And, and then I was like, oh, well, can I do a Rogue one? Can I do a Storm one? <laughs> and then um, I think the ones I initially asked for were Jean, Rogue, Storm, Emma, and Psylocke. And then, and Scarlet Witch, those were the six I asked for. And then Marvel started asking for them, which was a really wonderful thing. Um, and yeah, now we've done a lot and we've branched out into men. And um, there's a, I have one that I'm turning in next week. That's, uh, well, it'll probably be out by the time this comes up, but it's um, very different from any of the other ones. So it's branching out even further, but there, they're really fun and I love doing a research because I'm doing the research because I'm a nerd about those things and it's very fun. 
while the, we're talking, I, I'm the handbook guy. I love the research. That's my favorite part. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dad. Go ahead. No, no. Um, I was just gonna say while we're talking about the costumes and all that, which uh, Hellfire Gala costume was your favorite to piece together? Oh, um, well, I think from the first year, it uh, my favorites were Storm and Jean. Um, Jean because I I was really happy that they let me adapt that into her everyday costume. Um, and that they're using that now. Um, Cause I sort of had an eye toward that, uh, especially with all the like dress discourse that was going on at the time and <laughs> thought, you know, why doesn't she have a new costume when everybody else does? Um, and the storm one was a, a sketch I had done years ago of just what I thought could be a really cool storm costume, except that it, it was basically the same thing, except it had a regular cape instead of the cloud. And then um, I think Jonathan or, you know, some of the group in the, the X Slack group of writers had suggested maybe Storm is wearing weather is what they said. And then I thought, oh, well, let, maybe I could do something with the cape. And then that became the, the cloud. Um, from this past year, it's definitely Wanda's costume. I mean, similarly, that was something I had sketched out as a, a sort of everyday Scarlet Witch costume earlier. And then I jazzed it up, you know, for the gala with the beaded uh, crown and, you know, the hair and, and all that. But yeah, I mean, those are my three favorite characters. So it's hard not to pick them. But <laughs> I do really like those looks. They're spectacular. Each oh. each one of them is so so good. So thank you for that because they are. Oh, thank, thanks so much, uh, I, Russell. You're adorable. How you graciously accept these compliments. You're just like, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably turning bright red. I'm a little embarrassed about it, but I appreciate them very much. Uh, so let's shift the conversation to Scarlet Witch for just a few minutes. So uh, Steve Orlando, my friend, you are all over the place. You are writing X Men Green and Marauders and so many things we could talk about. Uh, I've I've been so thrilled to have you on the show a couple times. Let's talk about Wanda for just a minute. I'm going to sum up a whole bunch of shit in about 30 seconds. Uh, Wanda lost her babies and went crazy and caused House of M and then tried to redeem herself and join the Avengers and brought Wonder Man back from the dead and then joined the Uncanny Avengers and was a terrible bitch to Rogue. And then <laughs> all this stuff has gone on for so long. Uh, just in the last couple of years, she tried to reanimate the the uh, the... Uh, the dead people on Genosha and made the zombies, as I referenced earlier. Uh, she had the trial of Magneto where she created the waiting room for the X-Men. Uh, Steve got to draw or to write her in uh, the uh, Curse of the Man thing storyline, which worked to establish her with the Darkhold a little bit. Uh, on top of that, we had WandaVision take place and then Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness. And I know she's propelled into just superstardom. Uh, she's become a name that's like uh, akin to... Spider-Man and Thor. I think people really know this character, know this name. And I've been waiting for a while for them to launch a Scarlet Witch series, which brings us to 2023. Uh, Steve, let me hear a little bit about how this series came to be. Uh, well, first of all, I'm really excited because I have been on this podcast a variety of times and I've never been able to get you. And yet here we are because Wanda doesn't appear in Curse of the Man thing. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I am in, I am not infallible, my friends. 
and I only and I only do that because it's been like three times, and I'm always like, "Ah, oh, motherfucker!" Uh, but but here we are. Um, I you may be thinking of you may be you may be getting your magic women confused. Only Jennifer Kale appears in that. I just um, I had the dark hold in but, my brain, and I I have full editorial control. I could take this out, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're no, you know, you need to own up. I make mistakes all the time, and when I can't blame uh, when I can't blame someone else like Jerry for them, I, I will admit that they were me. So, um, but uh, that being said, yes, you you pointed out a mate, and the funny thing is, is you were rattled, you were going through that list, and I don't even think I think he's brought Wonder Man back from the dead twice, right? Because you weren't even talking about when she brings him back from the dead in the Perez era. Um, I don't think because that was uh, that was that was before House of M. So she's actually even resurrected Simon uh, two times. She just can't stop herself. Um, <laughs> but that brings up a good point. Wanda's family is bizarre, and that's something we're. I mean, this is a book about found family, and it's and on one hand, um, you know, it's funny that she's brought Simon back uh, a couple times. But then again, you know, her ex husband is Vision, who's based off Wonder Man's brain patterns. So she kind of, you know, it's not, it's not so surprising. She has an emotional connection there and her life has been bizarre. And that's one of the things that is, is coming into play in the book. We, you know, she has turned the page on things like Kathan, things like uh, her actions during house of M. And uh, we're looking to, we're looking to really put her in a positive place, a place of moving forward. And part of that is reconnecting with her family and realizing that she just has to accept that she has one of the strangest families out there. Uh, you know, she has, uh, she has her biological parents of whom what, at least one is still a mystery. She has her adopted family, uh, in, in Magneto. She has a biological brother, her adopted sister in Polaris. Um, and that's not even getting into things as we discussed, like the Grim Reaper, her kind of brother-in-law who's dead, uh, Vision and Wonder Man, um, obviously, uh, Viv Vision, Virginia Vision, um, and uh, the other Vision son whose name escapes me right now because of. I'm just having one of those moments. Uh, and even the fact that her, her, her kids who are back are her reincarnated kids, but they still have actual biological parents running around uh, that we just don't talk about uh, for the most part. The other, so, kid, uh, uh, the other kid is Vin, and he was also in Curse of the Man thing. I'm just kidding. <laughs> everybody's in that book. Uh, and yeah, so like it is wild. And one of the things that she is doing is, 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 is practicing almost radical acceptance of things like that. Because uh, she has suffered uh, mentally, emotionally, physically, both manipulation and 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 torment for a long time. And you know, who knows in comics time because time is a sliding scale. But in real time, for o- almost twenty years, and it's time to move on. It's time for her to turn the page and and, and be a force for positive change. So that's where we're picking up the book. Uh, she has uh, she she's she's finally free of of some, most of her major burdens. Uh, and what she's realized is how many people fell through the cracks because she didn't reckon with herself sooner. So as we get into the book, yes, uh, Wanda has set up shop somewhere new and she is looking to, uh, you know, basically uh, through through this shop that she opens up uh, for people with small problems, she's Wanda Maximoff. And then, of course, for the major cosmic problems, there's the Scarlet Witch. Uh, and and she's, she wants to do it all. Now, can she do that? None of us can, not even her. Uh, but that that's one of the struggles in the book. Whenever we are talking about how complicated the Summers Gray family is, I like to reference the Wanda Maximoff family, which is even more insane. If we recap this character's origins and retcons, again, I'll do like the 30-second version. She and Quicksilver are on the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. They later join the Avengers. 
He pairs with Crystal and has a baby. She pairs with Vision and has two twins who turn out to be magical constructs that involve Mephisto somehow and they disappear but later become Wiccan and Hulkling who are now connected to Captain Marvel and Anel and other characters. Uh, Wonder Man is the brain template for Vision and he's got the brother Grim Reaper as you talked about uh, which gives us weird connections with Ultron who's the creator of the Vision who then brings us connections to the Hank Pym wasp family tree which involves uh, the Hank Pym scroll baby with Tigra (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the, the new unstoppable wasp character it just it goes on and on and it's just craziness it's kind of like when i try to explain who is a who is a second cousin and who's a first cousin once removed in my family they're just all cousins and all these people are just family <laughs> for wanda uh we don't we don't we don't need to look at the details Wanda and Pietro initially believe that uh, Magneto and Magda are their parents after they believe that the wizard and Miss America are their parents. That's a whole different story. Uh, And then later it's told that they aren't. Not only are they not mutants, but Magneto and Magda are not their dads. Really, the high evolutionary created them. In the James Robinson series, we get the retcon that she has another mom who's also called the Scarlet Witch and her dad is a mystery. Are you going to be addressing her parentage and the Magda and Bova of it all? (laughs) Bova. I love Bova. I do love Bova. Um, you, know, you know, the answers to this are all just about how long we're able to run the series. Um, for You know, it it is, without sounding uh, shady at all about this, like long-term continuity is, is not a way to welcome new readers. Uh, so, you know, the, the main goal is, is, is showing people where Wanda is right now, why she's amazing why you should love her because yeah we all do but we're already fans we want to welcome in new people um and especially give them things that if they're fans from say the television show or the films that they can't get in those films uh obviously the budgets are not small uh, in at marvel studios so our job now is to do things that are even wilder even more challenging even more provocative um and and with that wanda is always going to be the core um, so if we you know if we have time i would love to dig into those things and we're not Shying away from aspects, you know, we engage her bizarre, her, her, her at least non-traditional relationship with Viv in issue two. Uh, we dig into uh, her recommitted sister, Polaris, uh, which is to say being recommitted to being her sister after uh, Trial of Magneto in issue three. Um, so, yeah, the hope is definitely that we can keep dropping in on these different family members and, uh, you know, and showing where they're at, showing how we can develop those relationships further. Uh, the North Star, though, though, is always Wanda. You know, sometimes you can oh, you can get wrapped up in, oh, I got to get this person in. Oh, I love to see this person. And the star of your book becomes not the star of their own book. And that we cannot let that happen. She is the star. She's an amazing character. So first and foremost is to her is you open that book and she's going to be doing wild shit that only the Scarlet Witch can do. Um, and then, yeah, you know, in time um, and, and for as long as we can, she's going to be doing that with, uh, with uh, the people that are most interesting to drop by. And like I said, those are already confirmed. Um, do I have things I would love to do uh, in the future? Yeah. Would I love to dig into the parentage? Uh, it's on the list. I must say I'm more interested in things like examining uh, things like, well, like everybody wants to see Hulkling and Wiccan and they want to see Speed. And so do I. But I'm interested in the fact that I just said as well, like what is Wanda's relationship like, not just with them, but with their actual biological parents that, to be quite frank, people seem to have forgotten for the past 10 years. Uh, you know, and, and especially Wiccan's additional brothers that are just there, uh, you know, and don't happen to be reincarnations of Wanda's magic kids. So like, there are things that really interest me and and I hope we have time, but 
first and foremost, like so far above that you can't even see the concept of guest stars is, is really showing people why Wanda is the amazing character she is. I forget sometimes that Viv Vision's brain patterns are based off of like a combination of Vision and Wanda's brain patterns. That's yeah, that's correct. Fascinating. That's and that comes up in issue two. You know, Wanda kind of says, uh, you know, what I mean, she is, she she is, she's not Viv's mom, but she kind of is. You know, uh, and there's this weird. She calls Vivian not Vivian. She calls Virginia her sister through space and science. Uh, in that issue, and that's kind of you know where it's at because it's only in comics. Oh well, you know. You know, my my ex husband made uh, took my brain patterns, made a robot, blended those with his, and then put them into additional robots. It's a, it's a tale as old as time. Comics. Orlando, <laughs> you are one of the few people that can out obscure me, and I'm super excited to see what foes you drum up. Uh, this is a preemptive announcement. Well, the good news have- is that they all have appeared in Curse of the Man thing. So if you read that, <laughs> and they and they are all the ninth Marauder. <laughs> yes. Um, preemptive announcement. I do a Patreon channel for this show where we explore uh, obscure and uh, kind of side characters. Two of my next six episodes on the Patreon channel, one of them is about Magda uh, with my friend Noel Reed. And then Anthony Oliveira and I are doing Bova in a month. And I, I can't wait to uh, share all of my Bova thoughts with all of you. <laughs> you can call me when you're ready to do, uh, what's a good one? Um, call me when you're ready to do Stingray or and I will I, be there. I am ready tomorrow, Steve. We'll talk. <laughs> <laughs> Russell, what's it been like to work on the Scarlet Witch book? Uh, interfacing with Steve and with Sarah. I mean, what a powerful team to be working with. Oh, it it's really been a dream project. I mean, I so I actually I didn't know there was going to be a Scarlet Witch uh, solo series. I had hoped there was going to be one, and I emailed some people at Marvel just to say. You know, like, it's one of my favorite characters. And, you know, if there's ever going to be another solo series for her, I'd really love to do the covers. Like, that would be a dream project. Like, if you'd consider me for that, um, like, no worries. If not, I understand. And, you know, if you want to go in another direction or it doesn't work out. And I don't know if it was later that day or later that week. I heard from the editors, um, Alana and Caitlin, and about the book. And they sent me Steve's. Uh, pitch and sort of the breakdown of the first arc and I you know wrote back immediately to say yes and I loved his pitch so much um and I told them that and I think I told Steve this too that like as a Wanda fan this book is what I want you know from a from a Wanda comic that you know she's been through so much shit and so much stuff has happened to her and this book, you know, she's moving on from that and she gets to be a character and gets to be the star of the the thing, like Steve was saying. Um, So that's uh, been fantastic to be a part of, you know, this part of her story and then um, getting to, you know, they wanted to use the the costume and have me adapt it and change it a bit, which was wonderful. and yeah, I've I've absolutely loved doing the the covers. I'm I'm doing all the color on the covers too, which I don't, which I do for the costumes covers and for some of the gala stuff, but not always. And um, that's been really fun. I've I've really loved it. I will say as well, I'm very excited. I mean, this is perhaps verging into spoiler territory for me, Russell. T- to my knowledge 
knowledge, I haven't seen, I, I'm very excited for the issue four cover because it's when everything finally blows up um, in like the biggest way possible. So I'm, I'm excited to see it. And I'm excited Have you not for seen it? To see it. Uh, no, but I would happily take a look. Oh, because um, I just turned in number five um, last week, I think. Well, so. you, got my, you, got, you got my number, girl, so let's talk about <laughs> it. Uh, I've, uh, I've been waiting for you. To, yeah, I'm, I'm excited because, you know, fans, readers now know uh, that Darcy Lewis is appearing in the book um, thanks to the uh, magic of press releases. And um, that whole, all of that, you know, for folks who are, 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 are tuning in with issue one, you've now read the issue, you know, or you know it's coming. But all of that comes to a head in four and five, and it is kind of a huge blockbuster. Um, so while I was, oh, you know, off the planet when I saw Russell's covers the two and three, um, I was like, oh my God, I can't wait for four and five because it is truly like our big knockdown, drag out uh, climax of the first arc. So I will happily look at those and more so I'm very excited for everybody else to see them as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about those. And I also want to say that um, Sarah draws a really great Darcy. Like I got her pages for issue one and I thought that was just perfect. Her depiction and the translation of that character into the comics, I thought was excellent. She crushed it. And I do have to say as well for folks, like everybody should burn some sage and everything because I'm waiting for the final confirmation in issue two that like some of our Darcy lines have made it past S&P. So um, I'm, I'm I'm very much I'm very much hoping that they all get in. But she's been a pleasure to write. That's how that happened. You know, we had we had created uh, we we were writing a character to be in Wanda, working in Wanda's shop, and have this mystery. And because the the Cat Dennings, you know, sort of delivery is not in like my own cynicism, I was already kind of writing Darcy. And as we as as we worked through the, the through the pitch. And through issue one, Alana and Caitlin said, well, why don't we, you know, why don't we make this? She's already appeared in WandaVision and you're writing a character that kind of delivers things the way Kat Denning does. Anyway, so it really was a nice moment of synchronicity. Sometimes these things, you know, I know the the, the rumor mill turns and everybody's like, oh, they made Steve put this character in. Quite the opposite. Uh, it, it was an amazing idea to, to blend these these characters into one and make it Darcy Lewis. And, uh, and she plays off Wanda in a way that is really, really special. Uh, you know, the funny thing is, is um, we're trying to, <laughs> I can't say, I, I shouldn't say that that way, but having a character who is really sarcastic, I think is great uh, with Wanda because we are sort of, she's exploring a sense of humor in the book. It's not a funny book like capital F, um, but it's almost like this is a thing that she's learning from Darcy, right? It, it comes with her newfound confidence. She's not someone who, like she knows what she can do. She's not boastful, so to speak, but she's also very self-aware uh, and confident in her abilities. And with that, she's sort of venturing out or taking more risks. So as much as Wanda's learning, uh, or rather Darcy's learning from Wanda, I'm being protected by Wanda for reasons that will be unveiled in the book. She's learning from Darcy too. So the whole thing really has been a nice bit of synchronicity. Uh, and it's important to say that because that I owe that one to Alana and Caitlin. They've both been wonderful. And, uh, and now she's in the book and it wouldn't be the same without her. Nice. I feel like it's important with a book with so many fantastical elements, you know, to have a grounded character like that. No, you're hundred percent right. You know, the funny thing is, is when I, uh, when my boyfriend and I met, he had never seen a Marvel movie, uh, which is uh, impressive that we ended up dating, but it was the truth. And like for someone who's never, and for specifically someone who's not big into the Thor lore, uh the things that people remember are usually like the things that ground it are the are the darcy moments 
it's an absurd thing, but I've never had someone not laugh in the dark world when she calls Mjolnir meow meow, like multiple <laughs> times, you know? And so like, it, it is, uh, it, it is, uh, it's an undervalued component to books that are tend to be high fantasy or have a lot of jargon, have a lot of lore. You know, you can only have so many like wands of Watum before someone like, you know, gets a little confused. So uh, I think it's great to have her there for the reasons you bring up, Dan. And that is, you know, it's not the only role she plays in the book. She has a big uh, assertive macro story as well uh, that becomes the A plot in four to five because it collides with Wanda's story. Uh, but she's also there, as I said, just to, to ground these moments. Because again, you know, if, if in a world where superheroes are real, or in a world where the Scarlet Witch is real, there's so much that... Wanda even takes for not granted, but takes as 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 normal. That is by no means normal, uh, and and you only remember that when you have someone there to say, "Oh no, your life is truly strange." Like you just, you know, apparated across the planet, or you've just turned you know, the idea of a cat into the idea of a dog worldwide, and that's not like not a normal thing. <laughs> was there a was there a character uh, that you were the most excited to introduce um, back into Wanda's life, or introduce into her life for the first time? like a character or familial relationship you're the most excited to explore that you can tell us about? <laughs> oh, it's absolutely Pietro. No, it's an easy answer. Uh, I mean, I uh, about a year ago, I was working at a convention and my friend that helps me with the booths told me that I was kind, but not nice. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think that's absolutely fucking true. Uh, but the point is, is that that's kind of when I was sitting back and thinking about how Pietro was going to fit into the book, I kind of got him, you know, like he's not a nice person. He's irritated by most people, especially, you know, thinking back to the Peter David X Factor issues where you find out that sometimes, at least back then, like everything was happening at super speed all the time. So everything mm -hmm. was intolerable for him. It was taking like hours for people to get out one sentence to his, to his perception. Um, and that's when I kind of realized, like I myself have been known for being a dick. Uh, and, and so is Pietro. And it was nice to sort of put that layer in there where he is one, but he also is a good person. He also is kind. But then again, he would probably go to his grave without ever admitting that. You know, there was, I, you know, I will say because it didn't end up being the version that went to print, but there was an early version of the pitch um, where Wanda was, I was thinking back to All-Star Superman and, and the issue where Clark is just like bumbling around uh, Metropolis and acting a fool. And you see that he's just like low key saving people from everyday accidents, but they just think he's a big buffoon, right? Like he trips over something. And these people don't even know that he's pushed them out of the way of a car or like falling glass or something like that. Or he sneezes and he vaporizes like a, I don't know, again, like a <laughs> rock that's fallen. It, it doesn't matter. Um, and these things were going to start happening. You know, you wouldn't see, uh, you know, books would flip to the right page that Darcy needs for a spell or something. And you wouldn't necessarily be like the wind or like things would randomly be happening. And then you would find out later on that this has been Pietro the whole time. And the thing that he's doing uh, has been basically keeping being a, like this guardian angel for everybody that's important in his life, but it's super speed. So none of them know, you know, like he would never admit that he cared first of all, and, and more so that he did something nice for people. So he's spending, you know, the way we were at that point, we we're going to establish his status quo is that he was basically living nearly invisibly, uh, helping out all these people that have mean th meant something to him in the past, including Wanda, but then, you know, would rather die than be caught in the act. You know, like she was, she was going to eventually find him in issue, in issue five and discover that this was him. And he would say, you know, well, that's absurd. You know, I don't, I don't care. Yeah, that wasn't me. You know, I was dead at the time. Uh, and, and, and to me, that's kind of him. And then a little bit of that happens in issue one. 
Uh, Wanda does reveal she has a way to know what Pietro really thinks. Um, and then, of course, he, you know, he has to snipe back at her because he almost can't help himself. Um, but it, it was absolutely him. And I hope he gets a chance to come back because I do. I did really enjoy having him in the book. Uh, as we are wrapping up the first part of this, I want to say three things quickly. Number one, uh, listeners, you can only hear us, not see us, but my word is this a handsome group <laughs> of guests. <laughs> uh, number two, uh, uh, Russell and Steve, something you guys both have in common. I love having my continuity brain like fucked with a little bit. And both of you do that regularly. Uh, Russell, when you're doing your covers, I'm like, where's that costume from? And I have to go do a deep dive. Like, oh, that's Gambit's all new X Factor costume. I forgot about that one. Or uh, Steve, I mean, I, sometimes I'm like, oh my God, he used Stitch or Armageddon Man. But other times I'm like, who the fuck is Stringfellow? Like, <laughs> I have no idea who this person well, is. Well, <laughs> it's kind of moot after his brief appearance, is it not? So I mean, it's fantastic. I, I love to have my brain challenged in that way. Uh, three, and then finally, uh, I get to do a lot of deep character research. We're, we're in the 60s, but with the Patreon stuff, I'm all over the Marvel Universe reading. Just last night, I got to record an episode with Matt Horak on Asp who is a character that I love indelibly now, but I, I've also got to do like lengthy trials for Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. So as you're talking about them, I'm like, yeah, I know these guys. I like, I know how their brains work now, which is such a fun thing. It's a, uh, it's a great nerd space to occupy. So uh, uh, what a joy to have all of you here so far. Thank you for being here. Um, with that, we're going to transition into our issue review for the day. This is a, uh, as noted earlier, Avengers, Origins, Scarlet Witch, and Quicksilver. So we've we've been doing a couple books from the X-Men Origins lines focused on the 60s characters. The Avengers or, uh, Origins were running around the same time. There are issues devoted to like Ant-Man and Wasp and Thor and Vision and I think Luke Cage has one. Uh, this is the Scarlet Witch Quicksilver one. This is from January 2012. The writer is Sean McKeever, who was just on my show. I got to meet Sean, who is uh, just a lovely human. Uh, and the artist uh, is uh, Mirko Pierfederici, if I'm saying that correctly, who is an artist that did quite a bit of X-Men work. He has had uh, runs on Wolverine and uh, X-Men and Marvel Zombies. Uh, the colorists here are Javier Tardaglia and Jerry Henderson. Uh, Dave Lanfear is the editor, or excuse me, the letterer, and uh, Lauren Sankovich on edits. Uh, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver first show up in X-Men number four as part of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. They are part of the team until they leave right around X-Men number 11. And then they join the Avengers in Avengers number 16. It's not until later with, uh, with other stories that we learn a lot of their backstory. Right at the beginning uh, in X-Men number four, we get a flashback from Magneto that talks about how he rescued them in the Bavarian Alps or, or whatever country they're from. Uh, oh, goodness. Continuity brain uh, overload. Uh, uh, where, uh, goodness. Where are they from? Tran Transia. Transit. Well, I mean, it's made up, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, believe, so. <laughs> I wanted to say Sokovia, but that's the movies. Uh, but, they're, uh, from a, they're from a test tube in the high evolutionaries. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they are uh, they're rescued from a fire that Wanda caused. The mob was descending on them and Magneto saved them. This issue kind of delves around that continuity. We do have examples in the 60s X-Men of Wanda being vastly mistreated by both Toad and Mastermind, who often sexualize her. Uh, Magneto tries to kind of pawn her off a few times, like, look, here's my beautiful woman teammate. You should have her, Submariner. That, that will give you a reason to join our team. Uh, he's also really cruel to Quicksilver and Wanda, who are constantly questioning why they're on the Brotherhood. So this issue kind of dances around those early appearances and uh, lands with them in the Avengers. Uh, Steve Orlando, will you take us through the beginning part of the book? And then let's talk about it a little bit. 
Yeah, I mean, the opening deals with, uh, well, as you said, some time ago in Eastern Europe, because uh, it's always some time ago. Um, although I, I do like that no matter how long these characters are around, Wada and Pietro always seem to have grown up kind of in the 50s, despite, like, but like, even though realistically this probably happened in 2010 now, not to, not to, you know, there was a game I remember when I was at DC where we would go back and we would decide based on how long Batman was around what version of Zorro he would have seen before he was killed. <laughs> and we eventually realized that currently it was like the, it was like the seek the 2005 sequel, uh, the, the legend of Zorro with Antonio Banderas and, uh, and mm -hmm. Catherine Zeta Jones. Um, so to that end, I'm always entertained by how some time ago is depicted in all comics and especially here, but yes, no, we well, have and uh, to add to that very quickly. I, uh, uh, Magneto, given the concentration camp storylines, if he's their parents, they would have had to have been fathered by <laughs> in the fifties or forties. And I, I believe Mark Grenwald in a handbook, I'd have to look this up to make sure, but there was one point where he said the, uh, the high evolutionary evolutionary had to keep them in suspended animation for decades before the twins were given to the Maximovs. Otherwise they'd be too old to run around. <laughs> <laughs> there's, yeah, a, I mean, there's some interesting takes <laughs> you know Wanda's powers affect probability so who knows how long Magda was you know she was pregnant baking. for 79 months <laughs> <laughs> but uh so anyway yes so we, we open up uh in a, a camp full of uh which I which appears to be full of Romani folks uh, and you know, Pietro, Pietro and Wanda are discussing their the, the, pretty classic conflicts, right? Like they, 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 they know they don't fit in. They don't even fit in uh, with other people who don't fit in um, for reasons that and Pietro's very worried about having silver hair here, as if he doesn't know that every crisis gay will have that exact same hair color <laughs> in a couple years. Um, I've been told I'm not allowed to until I turn 40, uh, because then I will be in crisis, but, um, I'm going gray enough naturally thanks to comics. But so he's worried, uh, about people he's wearing, uh, about people discovering his gray hair, less so about his super speed. And as they're traveling, uh, they get into an argument with the other folks from their, from their camp. Uh, mostly because they know the truth and, and there are, there is prejudice against them and their unnatural back or I shouldn't say unnatural, their non-traditional background. Uh, and so this comes to a head, uh, as they're traveling and they get taken advantage of, uh, by folks looking for local people to do hard, to do labor, to do farm labor. Um, but as you might admit, or, or rather, as you might expect, uh, with what we know about Wanda, as they go to this farm, it's not long before they're being mistreated. Uh, and as the farm owner attempts to sexualize Wanda, as you had noted, something that she dealt with a lot back then, or even now, um, Pietro's like, away and she she's defends like herself. Changing, she's like changing in the barn and he's peering around the corner. It's so gross. Well, I was going to say, like, it's not as though the actual gaze of the artist doesn't also sexualize her in this book, but that's as far as I'll go to ever to ever slander any one of our peers. Um, it's not it's not it's not the most uh, welcoming gaze to a female reader, but she sure does get naked in the barn. And there is, uh, you know, Clarence or whatever his name is, like leering in the back, uh, you know, like like the coach after swim practice when I was in high school and he's getting weird. And uh, sure enough, she defends herself. And uh, that leads to a massive fire, uh, which is kind of where I step out. But as the fire happens, um, of course, they get blamed. And in this case, Wanda, broadly speaking, did set the fire. It's just that she's being, you know, the whole town, she's being gaslighted about how it happened. The, uh, the, the person that 
Well, I made a move on her saying that, you know, she seduced him and all this, and it's all classic male bullshit. Uh, and, you know, she, she stands up for herself, sets that fire. Unfortunately, the town rebels, and this is what brings us into uh, the timely arrival of Magneto. This, uh, this gives context about how the fire got started, which is uh, kind of a cool space to add in here. But they leave the Maximoffs completely out. Uh, Jungle and Maria aren't here. There's a lot of uh, a lot of spaces that could be explored, but Sean's keeping the story pretty simple for us. Russell, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the cover and the art in this book. I love the cover. Uh, Marco did, I cannot pronounce this. Marco Pier, Pier Federici. No, the cover artist is, um, Marco Djurjevic. Oh, pardon me, yes. Um, I, cannot, I, I apologize for butchering that name, but um, it's an incredible cover. Um, I love the use of spot color. It's mostly black and white, and then the only colors in it really are Wanda's red uh, costume and then Pietro's green costume. Um, I think the poses are incredible. It, it, kind of sets up those characters. If you don't know them, you get a lot just from the way they're posed there. Um, of course, Wanda's hair looks amazing. Um, yeah, wonderful cover. Uh, and uh, do either of you, uh, Dan or, or Russell, have any thoughts on the story we've covered thus far? I talk, I know I talk a lot about the the straight cis men or the enemy thing in my section, but... <laughs> um, that's that's yeah it's just it has a lot of I, I know this is probably intentional that it has a lot of that that like kind of like gross um early comics age uh treatment of women female characters kind of vibe but I'm, I'm sure when the book came out that was intentional to be uh reminiscent of the era of which the origin they're discussing uh, did, um, oh go ahead uh, i was gonna say did anybody else read in the 90s um the series Professor Xavier and the X-Men. Yeah. Which, yeah. It was a, um, for those that don't know, it was a modern or modern and for the 90s retelling of all of these, the first chunk of X-Men stories. Um, you know, I know Fabian Misieza wrote some of them. Um, I loved those. And they they have a Wanda and Pietro one that sort of redoes uh, X-Men number four, but adds more context to it, similar to how this is doing it. But I think what happened in that, instead of the, you know, defending herself from a predator thing or, you know, from a lecherous guy, there was a child who was like falling down a snowy slope and um, out in public and Wanda used her powers to make a tree fall to kind of stop the child from, you know, falling all the way down the hill. And that's when the townsfolk, you know, thought she was a witch and then they came for them with the pitchforks and everything. And I always really liked that because it was Wanda exposing herself as a, well, then as a mutant, but, you know, as a witch or someone with powers in a heroic act. Um, and so if I'm, you know, comparing the two, I... I would prefer that than the one where she's more of a victim, but yeah, the, instead of being me tooed. Exactly. Yeah. Um, although, as you said, this one does line up with her earlier characterization where, you know, literally everyone was commenting on how gorgeous she was and then like trying to take advantage of her and, you know, whatever. I mean, I think that there's from, I mean, it's something that I try to be mindful of. Uh, we should all be trying to be mindful of. I don't know Sean at all. As you said, I'm sure that he's trying to, uh, 
homage the time that the stories came out. But you know, it's it's very easy from the out from without a community to 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 misread what like the iconic story is. You know, like we're talking about, it's nice for Wanda not to have been a victim of sexualization or Me Too'd. But I can easily see a world where someone who has never gone through that, uh, at, at least not in a dramatic way, you know, feels like that's the angle, right? Like this is the angle that shows that I get it. In the same way that, it, you know, like 50% of stories that feature queer characters and 50, I made that up by the way. So, but like a majority, like a, a notable percentage of stories featuring queer characters not written by queer creators, which I don't consider an obligation, but research is. Uh, you know, is, is either about the pain of coming out, the pain of being closeted, or the pain of being hate crime. And and I feel like there's, you know, I feel like oftentimes when you're without a community, that, that is kind of your first inclination. It's almost like, I feel like people almost think it's a form of like radical empathy to show how well they, they understand the struggle. But at the same time, uh, I would, at least as a queer and Jewish reader, like, I'm sick of this, like, I, we don't need any more of those stories for at least 10 years, you know? And I think that yeah. applies to Wanda here as well. We just uh, we just did a recent episode on my podcast featuring Sarah Brunstad, where we talk about Spider-Man X-Men 1, and we address Blob being fat-shamed uh, quite a bit in that issue, which is often how he was portrayed in the 60s, but this is a 2008 book. And we, uh, you know, and on this podcast, I've always tried to say we can respect the creators, but still analyze older content from a modern perspective. And when it comes to things like Me Too, the world changed pretty vastly in 2015, 2016. Stories that may have slipped past editorial then may not now. So yeah, if we uh, if we have anything critical to say about it, uh, I'm friends with Sean at this point. I like him. And I think he would be okay with us talking critically about something that may feel uncomfortable. Uh, I, in fact, I asked him a few of these questions in my interview with him, which will come out <laughs> about a week after we record this. Uh, he's, he's a great guy. Uh, but yeah, I agree with you. The, uh, the idea of her as a hero rather than a victim is, is uh, vastly preferable. Um, as we get into the next section, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preemptively state this. If you go back and read 60s X-Men, there are multiple scenes where Wanda is objectified. There's one particularly uncomfortable one where Mastermind is like cornering her. And uh, basically saying, I could use my illusion powers to give you whatever you want. And she's like, I'd rather die than marry you. And he's, he's like, you shall be my mate. And then Quicksilver has to come save her. Uh, we're getting a little bit of that in what's about to follow with Toad and Mastermind. I love Toad. I hate Mastermind. But there's, uh, there's some problematic stuff about to happen. Uh, let me turn it over to Dan for the second section of the book. Um, right. So Wanda's powers manifest in a sort of shockwave, which intensifies the villagers' thirst for blood. Um, Pietro rushes to her side to protect her and looks back at the crowd. Uh, the same, he was talking to a girl earlier who was saying like, oh, you should, you should show your silver hair, which is wild to me. That's such a plot point in this book. Um, but the, um, she, uh, turns on him and says, kill them both. But then a pitchfork is raised to her face, cut to... The master of magnetism himself, Magneto, is now on the scene, and he declares the twins um, under his protection. He takes them away to a hideout in the Alps and begins explaining his purpose and his side of the mutant war. Pietro is understandably pretty wary about it, but Wanda is willing to jump right into the cause, stating that they are in his debt um, for saving them. Um, a couple, I think the next page we find Quicksilver alone on top of a balcony of the Capitol building of the Republic of Santo Marco, which is a country with was hit with his and Wanda's help, the Brotherhood overthrew and are the ipso facto new leaders of. 
Um, and one of the cool things about this page is it gives a little context as far as why Magneto wanted to take over Santo Marco. They talk about a policy that was made to exterminate mutants in the country. So rather than just Magneto conquering some random country, we get a little bit of a plot point as to why that was necessary. It's kind of a cool spot. It is. It's super actually, interesting. By the way, Santo Marco is coming back in not one but two books I write. Hey, all right. right. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, well, Pietro is understandably pretty critical of this move. He says that they are more overlords than, than leaders and that people won't even come out of their homes because they're so scared of them. Wanda, um, who has yet another sibling fight with him on a balcony. I know they did that a couple books before. Um, she comes out and very pro-hostile takeover saying that, according to Eric, they already fear them and they would only come out of their homes at this point to harm them, implying that it's better to kind of have this totalitarian hold over the over them um by way of eric's rationalization of their decision to to overthrow the country um pietro questions wanda about her newfound closeness to magneto questioning his whole deal with the helmet and the fact that he appears to look at him with disgust wanda stands by him accusing pietro of becoming a different person whom she can't read anymore he rebuttals well maybe we both are um and now for the debut moment of mastermind and toad in this book we find them being gross as hell oogling an illusion of Wanda. <laughs> uh, they're, they're oogling an illusion of Wanda created by Mastermind, and Mastermind calls her fetching. Toad says, like, fetching me a sandwich or a beer. That's <laughs> <Lord. laughs> um, Gross. We've all so been gross. there, right? Who hasn't been there, though? Honestly. That's a little casual misogyny between friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah like, you know. Uh, we we all everybody <laughs> gross <laughs> quicksilver's uh super older brother powers activate he rushes through the illusion pinning mastermind to a wall threatens him and mastermind uh threatens toad and mastermind says and um mastermind goes well man we're on the same team you know it's magneto who you have to actually worry about this eats at quicksilver a little bit who then eavesdrops on a conversation wanda and eric are having and he decides that he's going to get to the bottom of whatever it is magneto's hiding um, Wanda is pushing Magneto to explain why he was actually there to rescue them in the first place, which is a point that Pietro was initially wary of because he said, if mutants are so rare, then why are you just here to save us? Like where, what kind of a coincidence is that? They said it's fate. Magneto says, well, it's a little more than that. He says that, um, he was visiting the place where his late wife Magda lived. Uh, he tells her how Magda would quell his rage and that they had a daughter named Anya he implies that their neighbors were out for his blood and they uh, killed Anya instead, leading Magda to leave him heartbroken. Uh, he tells Wanda that he imagines Anya would have looked something like her had she survived. And then finally, uh, for my section, in a scene straight out of the White Lotus, Pietro finds a very conspicuous photograph on the dresser um, and has some sort of revelation and he leaves to confront Magneto. We watched the White Lotus season two finale last night and I couldn't sleep. I was so upset. I literally, I literally <laughs> lost sleep. If you haven't seen the ending. It was so good though. <sighs> it was so good. <laughs> Amazing. I'm so upset. <laughs> we had a whole thing uh, at my work. Um, I did watch it. I actually have to watch it again with my boyfriend after this call because he had to go to bed last night. So it's been hard not to talk about it all day. I want to see it again and watch the whole season. God, it's good. I love uh, I love good storytelling. Uh, in this section, 60s Magneto is nuts, man. He's crazy. They blame it on like uh, his powers making him nuts. 
Uh, and then later when uh, he gets turned into a baby by Alpha the Ultimate Mutant and then Moira messes with his genome and then he comes out of it like all calm and then he joins the X-Men. Anyway, 60s Magneto occasionally gets these kind moments, but only retroactively. In the 60s, he's nuts. But like we get Anthony Oliveira's story where he's like comforting teenage Bobby. Like, it's okay that you're gay. We get this mm. one. He's very grabby with Wanda, but also like very tender and sincere. It's kind of reminiscent of Jerry Duggan's recent scene with him in X-Men Red, where he's talking about Anya and how he, you know, he has lost her and it's the greatest tragedy of his life. Uh, but he's like very fatherly here, even though he's like very touchy. He keeps like grabbing her shoulders and like grabbing her arms. Uh, from Stephen Russell, any thoughts on this second section before we continue? Um, well, first I wanted, since this isn't uh, audio medium, I want the listeners to know that Dan is wearing what looks like an Agatha Harkness uh, brooch. That is a, correct. A purple um, ensemble that is, very appropriate and uh, I love the brooch. Um, my thought, my main thought from this section is costume related too, which is I miss Wanda's wimple, like the Kirby um, under chin crown. Um, I do love that. And I love in all the like retellings when they, when they use that instead of the modern costume. So I miss that here. Uh, thank you, Steve Orlando, for the silent correction. I said Jerry Duggan on X-Men Reddit is Al Ewing. Thank you. I appreciate that. I would have been embarrassed in post. <laughs> how many How many fingers am I holding up for that the readers? That is two. Uh, that is two times I've screwed up today. <laughs> 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 Russell, do you want to continue for, uh, in the third section for us? Tell us what happens next. Okay, so after that, uh, Pietro Bursin, um demanding Magneto take off his helmet um, to reveal his white hair. And Wanda's, you know, unimpressed. And she's like, so what? Like, that his hair is similar to yours and she doesn't think it's a big, you know, revelation or anything. And Pietro's about to explain more about the photos when, you know, now that Magneto has his helmet off, um, he feels Professor X in his brain and tells the Brotherhood that the X-Men are there. And then they fight with the X-Men and uh, Angel punches Pietro and then Wanda drops some uh, rocks on Warren, um, which is funny to me because I'm remembering in the first class comics when the two of them dated. Um, <laughs> and then Magneto- Which, uh, which I, I asked Tom Brevoort about like all this retroactive continuity and he's like, nope, first class is not continuity. Oh, uh, he doesn't okay. count it because the costumes are too different. Okay, well, that's fine. But it's still good. I really <laughs> love those. Um, oh, I'm blanking on the artist's name who did the more cartoony little backup. Uh, yeah, 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 I know what you're talking about. Where Wanda and Jean team up. I love those so much. Um, anyway, uh, after, you know, Wanda knocks out Angel, Magneto tells her to kill him. And she hesitates and then Pietro, you know, says they won't do that. Um, and then our view of the fight ends when Pietro goes after Cyclops and then gets knocked out. And Pietro has a flashback that's seemingly to when he was a baby and uh, Magda is leaving him or presumably Magda is leaving him. Um, and then Pietro wakes up in a cell back in Magneto's base and Wanda tries to reason with Magneto 
uh, you know, to let him go. And, but then, you know, says that she won't kill anyone. And Magneto tries to justify killing as self-defense, but Wanda isn't having it. And she says that she doesn't want to be a part of this war and that maybe the X-Men are right, which is not the thing to say to Magneto. Um, and he then uh, grabs her arms and calls for Toad to put Wanda in another holding cell. And this is a rare time when Magneto's taking a break from beating Toad up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Steve, while you were talking, I looked up Santo Marco. I'm going to quickly read the list. This is off Marvel Wiki. I have not referenced this to make sure it's accurate. Santo Marco has appeared in the comic books in X-Men Volume 1, Number 4, Professor X and the X-Men Number 5, which is the one that Russell referenced a little while ago. Uh, X-Men and Doctor Doom Annual 1998, War Machine Volume 2, Number 1, Astonishing X-Men Volume 3, 45 through 47, this issue, Extreme X-Men Volume 2, Number 1 and 6, Storm Volume 3, Numbers 1, 7 and 8, Totally Awesome Hulk Number 20, Weapon X Volume 3, Number 12, X-Men Blue Volume 1, Number 18 and 19, Weapon X Volume 3, 13 and 14, X-Men Gold 26. That's a lot of appearances of Santo Marco. I did not realize that. This well, and Marauders was. and Marauders Eleven, and because uh, it's, I mean, it's so not what the main plot is about. It's Marauders Eleven and the upcoming X Men Green as well. So huh. there you go. Maybe we need a Whoa. Santo Marco episode on my Patreon. <laughs> yeah, well, Eleven does not go well for Santo Marco. It is based off uh, an actual disaster that happened. Uh, something bad happens there and it's based off uh, a power plant explosion that I believe was in Portugal, but I can't recall it. So I'm not looking at my notes. Um, but of course it's Santa Marco and, uh, and it's, and it's the mutants. So you find out that their nuclear, their reactor that blows up is actually just a mutant that they've been keeping there. And that's what they've been using to power the Island. So it's, a, it's the rescue portion of the issue. The Marauders have to go in and do some disaster relief. Um, you know, after doing all their time stuff for 10 issues. Oh, it's been so good, man. I, uh, I'm really loving the Marauders, right? It's been a blast. I can't wait to see what's happening next. Okay, I'm going to close off the issue and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Magneto grabs sure. Scarlet Witch one too many times just because she disagrees. He wants to imprison her. She says, no, if you cross this woman, she will be demure. But then she reaches a point where she is done. Uh, she casts his power, tangles him up in his own cage or his own cape. Uh, she knocks Mastermind and Toad aside and rescues Pietro. Magneto says, I will crush you. I built this building from metal. And we have a, a, a couple pages of them kind of getting out of the base, kind of sliding to safety. And then they go into hiding and they are making sure that Magneto does not know where they are. Now, in the comics, officially, they left the Brotherhood after the stranger took Magneto and Toad off into space and Mastermind was turned into stone. So this is adding a little bit of space here, but it's okay to mix the two together pretty easily. Uh, Pietro's starting to dream of a different life and they end up traveling to America together, even though they know that they may not find the life that they hope and they still have a lot of mysteries about their past. Uh, when they're there, they're immediately accosted by the vision of Spider-Man fighting the Scorpion and they have a discussion about what heroism means and how many heroes are here. And then they join the Avengers. Uh, Thor, Iron Man, and Captain America are leaving the team, and they are now recruiting Hawkeye, Quicksilver, and Scarlet Witch to join. And thus we have Cap's Cookie Quartet, which changes the uh, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver from X-Men characters into Avengers characters almost forevermore. Uh, and then they have a whole long journey after that. Uh, tell me your thoughts on this issue as we kind of wrap it all up. What did you love? What did you not like? Were there any questions left behind? 
I just wanted to point out in that last section, uh, two things. One is I really loved that, you know, when Wanda is fighting back against Magneto and she, in the first panel, you know, just looks like she's blasting him with the hex and, you know, they could have just left it at that and he could have been blown backwards. But I thought it was really clever to have her turn his cape against him and have it strangle him. That was, yeah. you know, something I, you know, don't remember her doing before and I thought that was really clever and then I wanted to point out um a few pages later when Wanda and Pietro are falling out of the building and they're sort of tumbling down uh a cliffside or or something and I really love the art there it feels like they're falling in the way that they're drawn in the way the bodies are positioned you can see them tumbling and I thought that was really well done yeah it's beautiful any other thoughts or comments on that last section or on the book as a whole? I think it's pretty well done. Yeah. It weaves into the continuity nicely. I think they do a good job, uh, as you said, of, of, of bridging what has to be and, and what can be updated, you know, for the, for the modern audience. And as well, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, th these are characters that traditionally, even, even in this, their backstory is somewhat mysterious. And so I think it does a nice job of, by the way, even if the promise is, is doesn't always work out, um, I think it, it, like the, the fact that their salvation comes in the idea of, of, of course, coming to America and joining the Avengers, it is a very nice superhero allegory for the way a lot of uh, folks think. Now, of course, do we deliver on that promise? That's a whole other discussion, podcast, and book. Uh, but I do like, you know, the, the iconography... Uh, I think it, it feels very true to what, when I speak to immigrants, I, I'm, I'm in the process of putting to press a book that I've worked on for like five years with a relatively famous uh, celebrity chef and immigrant. And it's funny, a lot of the, the, the breaking uh, that Mirko does here uh, when they're coming and, and coming to New York, it's very similar to the way uh, Jose described his own coming here when the first time he saw New York, the first time he saw America when he was in the Spanish Navy. Uh, and I think that, uh, I mean, that, that part, like I hit on weird things and that's one of the things that's really impressive to me. I'm a guy who, um, you know, never buys the pages people would expect from a book I'm in. They're most exclusively the, the pages that focus on like characters eating or being normal. And in the same way, I maybe respond to things that others wouldn't. And so I, so I do think the whole book is, is, is well done, well-written and well-illustrated, but this final scene to me is what seemed the truest of all things, because it does mirror what many people who I've spoken to in the course of this other non-superhero book have told me. Sure. Any other final thoughts? I think this book does a pretty good job of um, kind of, I don't want to say minimize, it's like condensing, I think is a better word, of uh, condensing the relationships and the reasons of why uh, Wanda and Pietro were never really truly um, fitting on the Brotherhood and why they ended up leaving in the first place. Like, I think it kind of um, simplifies their origin to a more, a much more palatable, um, like spoonful that that um, modern readers can kind of look at and be like, okay, like I get the gist, I get it, I understand why. Because um, when you sit and think of uh, their old continuity and how they were like originally villains and then they became part of like the reformed Avengers and the multiple issues that led into that, I feel like this is a good, like, kind of bite-sized chunk that kind of consolidates it in a in a way that makes a lot of sense, and I think still holds the uh, at least a similar amount of weight. Um, so I think that's a pretty good thing to this book's merit. Um, 
In early 2023, yeah. this podcast will move past the 1960s stuff and we'll be <laughs> into the 1970s. We've given a significant amount of real estate to Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch through the course of this show because of their prominence in the 60s X-Men space. Uh, but this will kind of be the last big episode we focus on unless Scarlet, kind of, Scarlet Witch kind of comes up naturally. But it's been really fun to kind of cap this off as we are getting ready to read the Scarlet Witch series. I'm, uh, I'm so pumped for it. Uh, Russell, I interrupted you. My apologies. Oh, sorry, I was just going to add on to that to say that I agree and that I thought um, this does a nice job of sort of laying out um, Wanda and Pietro's interior thoughts a bit more because in the, you know, the early 60s stuff, they say a lot like, oh, we don't belong here and, you know, whatever, but this gets across a bit more about what they're feeling and you can feel how uncomfortable they are everywhere and how they're looking for a home and you know finding it at the end with the Avengers I, I think it does a nice job of you know like everyone else was saying summing up that and staying faithful to what came before but adding things to it like teasing the Magneto parentage and you know early on and I think those you know a lot of the sort of putting Magneto putting his hand on Wanda, I, I kind of read that as him trying to be sort of fatherly a bit. Um, maybe it didn't come off that way, but <laughs> I, I think um, it's trying to show their relationship with him because when that, you know, revelation came up that, you know, that he thought he was their father and, you know, now sort of an adopted father, but there wasn't a lot of that we saw of that back when they were in the brotherhood. So I like any story that, you know, tries to fill in those, those gaps in a fatherly way. Let me close with one final question and then we'll do our outros. Uh, this is for both Steve and Russell. How do Wanda's powers work? Uh, and Russell, when you're answering, I would love to hear kind of the visual component of what that means as an artist. How do you make her power signatures uh, unique? So Steve, will you take that one first? I mean, she has her innate hex powers, and then she has, of course, what she's learned with sorcery, but I also think that those aggregate each other. Um, you know, we're not... I wouldn't even uh, attempt to step in the ring uh, and, uh, to do what James did with his, like, deconstruction of chaos magic and, and things like that. And that's actually a good thing, because we're not... Again, Wanda is the main character here uh, versus the lore and things like that. So this is so while, of course, we know that she's extremely powerful, at least in the uh, at least in the initial delivery of the first arc and going forward, it's the focus is more on her feats, uh, less so the mechanics of them. But that being said, I mean, just based within what we've seen her doing, uh, yeah, her 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 magical abilities alone. Uh, make her someone that can alter the very fabric of reality, and that you know, and and that depending on how much you want to lean on her being a nexus being, if you want to go back to the nineties, uh, she kind of can define at a base level, what magic can do. So she is kind of defining her own powers. Um, and then even when you get beyond that, her, 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 what used to be her mutant powers, her, her innate, or, you know, the, where, however you follow their provenance, her hex abilities, then make things that maybe wouldn't be possible normally for her more likely to be possible. So I feel like there, there is very little that Wanda can't in theory do, but then you get into the more mechanics of what would she do? What will she do? What's she willing to do? Um, and so while she is incredibly powerful, and I do think that there are very few things that given perfect knowledge she couldn't, uh, she couldn't affect, 
um, she is not perfect. She is still human. You know, there's a scene in, there's a scene in issue two when she's in um, the dreamscape. And for a moment, the dream queen gets the upper hand on Wanda because even though she is an incredibly powerful character, uh, she still is thinking like a human being. So she's in the dreamscape. She doesn't need to breathe. She doesn't need air to live, but she thinks she does because that's what she's been doing is muscle memory for, well, nebulously 30 years, like every character is. Uh, and so for a moment, that catches her off guard because though she has all these abilities and she can rewrite the very fabric of reality, she's still uh, doing it uh, based on, you know, roughly three decades of living as a human, human lo uh, socialization, human perspective. So um, are there things that Wanda couldn't do? Uh, I'm sure there are. I'm sure they're out there. But uh, I think through the combination of her ability to affect probability, um, her gift to affect probability and her, her learned magical abilities, there's, there's very little that's off the table. But the guidelines, the guardrails are more what she's willing to do, what she's even cognizant she can do uh, based on her perceptions uh, and, of course, her, 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 her character vulnerabilities. Um, it's easy to think that nothing can really beat Wanda. Um, and I don't think that's ever true. Unless, unless a character is completely devoid of, of connections and, 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 and a life, they always have ways that you can you can work them, and uh, much like a character like Superman, yes, maybe like in a metaphorical like arm wrestling match of comic book power, a few people could beat Wanda, but it's not always about that, uh, as we know. And for long term listeners, we just talked about the Dream Queen with uh, the episode with Marshila Rockwell, who uses the Dream Queen in her Sisters of Sorcery book. So go back and listen if you'd like more on her. Uh, Russell, what about the visual effects of Wanda? How do you draw those? Yeah, um, I mean her. The way her powers have been depicted over the years have changed. I mean, you know, 60 years of being a character, you're going to have variety. But I think the most common and that we saw in this issue, too, was the circles. Um, so that's what I've been um, playing with is especially the, you know, circles of varying sizes around her hands with the sort of starry spiked edges. I feel like that representation of her hexes is sort of her power signature and her... Uh, a sigil or you know just when she's using magic I feel like that would be represented around her hands and then you know if she's you know doing something to something over there like you know moving an object or you know throwing rocks or something then maybe the around the rocks would glow sort of red and um to indicate you know that a spell is being cast over there but I do really like the the round sigils around her hands. And then, you know, with the costume, um, she now, you know, has the sort of magic hair when she's using her powers, um, which is a new thing that, you know, I, I did with the Hellfire Gala look that we're carrying over with this. Um, and I, the thought with that was to show just sort of, from the start that you know this is a magical character and to give some really magical signifiers to her look in addition to her power signatures and you know the starry um effect evokes you know wiccan's costume and then the the hair is uh, a reference to um her sister polaris from the you know dark seduction era when she had the really big magic green hair um so you know there's references in there too but it's all in service of, you know, adding to that sort of magical power signature. 
phenomenal. I uh, I'm living this cool life where I get to hang out with Steve Orlando, uh, Dan Byrne, and <laughs> Russell Downerman on a Monday night. I'm so happy. Thank you all for your time this evening. I uh, whenever I finish these podcasts, my brain is just buzzing with ideas for hours. I had so much fun uh, tonight, and uh, thank you, thank you. Happy holidays to each of you, and thanks for your time and talents tonight. Uh, as we are wrapping up, let people know where they can find you online if they'd like to follow your stuff. And recognizing we're going to drop this episode on January 9th, I had to check my date. Uh, is there anything you would like to plug? You can find Graymalk and Lane, Graymalk and PP Like Podcast on Twitter, Graymalk and underscore Lane on Instagram. We've got some crazy cool content in the new year. We are slowing the production schedule down a bit to weekly episodes and weekly Patreon episodes, uh, plus our monthly trials. So I'll be posting announcements at the start of the year. Uh, my next two episodes after this are going to be X-Men 62 and 63. We're getting close to the end of the 60s run. And my special guests are going to be the legendary artist uh, Val Merrick, uh, who I'm so excited to have on. He is a big name from the 70s. If you aren't familiar with his work, look him up. Uh, after that, we get to uh, interview Gregory Wright, the writer of Silver Sable from the 90s, uh, which had a lot of LGBT content. I'm super excited to meet both of them. The next Patreon episode after this is going to be Birdie, another character Steve Orlando has got to use. Uh, and uh, oh, my guest on that one will be Terry Blass. So uh, uh, keep your ears open. We've got some great stuff coming up. Uh, as we're as we're exiting, let's go in the order of uh, Steve, Russell, and then Dan. Uh, well, I'm easy to find. Before I forget, Ted, you should definitely try to have Jan Drusema on, the artist of Professor Xavier and the X-Men, if you haven't. I have um, wonderful art. Wonderful. Let's talk. I would love to. <laughs> Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, no, she's she's awesome. She's awesome. Uh, as for finding me, uh, for as long as it exists, I'm on Twitter at the Steve Orlando, um, and I'm on Instagram, which doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Also at the Steve Orlando, and I'm very easy to find there. So uh, find me. Uh, you'll get more comics on Twitter while it lasts, uh, and you'll get um, more of my real life on Instagram. You can also talk about comics on there. I'm easy to find. Uh, anything you want to plug, Steve? Oh, in January? Well, you know, you should uh, hopefully you've all read Scarlet Witch number one. Uh, it's more that the timing is, uh, I barely know what time is anymore. Um, but you should definitely, uh, actually out this fall, if you haven't, there is uh, the 2099 Exodus, uh, Spider-Man 2099 Exodus. That collection just came out uh, now, uh, and so it'll certainly be available in, uh, in six weeks or whenever when this is coming out. But I'm extremely proud of that book. It has my X-Men 2099 issue. That I did, did with Kim Jacinto, one of my favorite single issues I've ever been part of. Uh, 2099 was my 90s shit. So to be part of the 30th anniversary is, is really, really exciting. Uh, and this is where we sent Cerebra into the present from following the longstanding tradition of taking a character from a terrible future and sending them back, back to the present. Um, it, you can also meet horsepower. <laughs> you can't listen, you can meet horsepower. He's in both, though, you know, because he's immortal. Um, uh, Tulkis, yes, horsepower. Also following a Marvel tradition of naming characters uh, and things after Lord of the Rings. Uh, see the Black Knight's horse, and the most prominent one being Sauron, a character that uh, I met before I read Lord of the Rings, so I was my priorities were all out of whack when I went to college. But, yes, yeah, so follow those. Follow X-Men Green, which is ongoing uh, on, on Marvel Unlimited. Follow Marauders, and uh, which is going to be doing uh, come January. Again, what is time? We'll probably be right in our Requiem for Genosha come January, which I'm really excited about. Uh, and then keep an eye out. You'll probably know more around this is coming as to what's next for me. Uh, but more stuff in Marvel um, and, and, of course, more stuff abroad as well. 
Fantastic. And speaking of Sauron, I get my Matt Horak print Sauron for my wall pretty soon. I'll be posting it. And the trial of Sauron on my show is coming up in March, which I'm very excited about as well. Uh, Russell, do you want to go next? Uh, yeah. Um, well, first, thanks uh, so much for having me. And it's great to hang out with you guys. Um, what am I supposed to say? Oh, uh, you can find me um, mostly on Instagram. Um, I'm most active there. It's at rdaughterman, R-D-A-U-T-E-R-M-A-N. And I'm also on Twitter at the same handle. Um, I pop in there, you know, post new art and stuff. Um, a little less active there. Um, and in January, yeah, I mean, the, the main thing is... Um, Around January, Scarlet Witch. I hope if you are listening to this and you picked it up, I hope you like it, and I um, hope you come back for issue two. Phenomenal. And then uh, finally, Dan. Um, yeah, you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at House of Burn. That's H A U S of B Y R N E. Um, I'm on Instagram a lot, and I'm sure I'll use TikTok eventually. Um, I don't have really much to plug. I am in a, a world premiere musical that's heading off Broadway next year. Um, I don't know if I'll be involved in an off Broadway run, but we are doing a workshopping it uh, out here in Southern California. So if you're in the area, you can head to No Square Theater in Laguna Beach uh, to catch me there. It's uh, based on a queer film, um, Waiting in the Wings, and it's the world premiere of the stage musical. Um, I will be the next convention I'll be at will be Gallifrey One in February. And as far as things to plug, um, just things that I have, I personally have nothing to do with, but please pick up the Scarlet Witch series so it does well because I want to read it forever. Um, <laughs> uh, please support Mr. Uh, Dodderman and Mr. Orlando's work because they are both wonderful creators. And Chad, thank you so much for having me here. It's been an honor and it's been wonderful to meet you all. So thank you so much. So, yeah, that's all I got. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Russell. Thank you, Dan. It's such an honor to hang out with you all this evening. Uh, we'll see you guys all back here next time on Gray Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.